Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message that I'm calling When There Is No Law. We find those words in Romans chapter 5 and verse 13. I want to read the entire scripture, but that's where it comes out of. It says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. What law they're talking about now is they're talking about the Mosaic law. This is where all the commandments of God began. It began way back there in Exodus chapter 20 when he laid out the Ten Commandments. And then after the Ten Commandments came a total of 613 different laws. It was very, very complicated. I would not wanted to have tried to live under that law-based system. Extremely complicated. In fact, I don't think there would be a man alive if you asked him, can you name all 613 of those Jewish laws that would be able to name them? And by his own default, he can't keep them, doesn't even know what they are. It was very, very complex. But it says, for until the law, sin was in the world. So here's what it's saying. It was saying there was a time that was before the law. And of course, we know that. It's all of Genesis. It didn't come until Moses and Exodus. And for thousands of years before Moses came with that law, the Bible says there was sin in the world. Well, how did that sin start? We know it started with Adam, right? Adam and Eve were the first two people, and that's where it got put into the world. And then we see all the civilization. We see people like Noah, and we see people like Enoch, and, and Mahaolio, and Methuselah, all these big names that lived for a long, long time back then. And we see people like Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, all these patriarch names from back then. And all of those people lived, they have one thing in common, they lived prior to the law. And so the Bible is saying here, for until the law, or it's literally saying before the law, it says sin was in the world. But here's an amazing thing, it's a fascinating thing. It says, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. And that word imputed literally means to be charged. It means to be credited to your account. It means to be deposited in your account. And it's saying, until the law, it says sin was in the world, but it is not deposited in your account when there is no law. Now you can kind of maybe run ahead and probably see where I'm going with this message. Imagine taking one hand full of baby oil and rubbing an immense amount of baby oil all over your arm. Imagine that is righteousness. The baby oil is the righteousness. Now imagine taking a Band-Aid that represents sin and trying now to get that Band-Aid to stick to that arm. It's going to be impossible, isn't it? It's not going to happen. That's what he's saying essentially there. He's saying, okay, listen, sin was in the world, but it can't be stuck to you. It can't go into your account. You can't be charged with it when there is no law. And we'll see as this message develops that, of course, we're not under the law. In fact, that's my next scripture. It says in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. In other words, what it's saying is sin can no longer be deposited into your account, can be no longer charged to your account, because you are no longer under that law. And it's the same law it was talking about in Romans chapter 5, verse 13. That mosaic law, that law-based system, it says you are no longer under that law, so it's impossible for sin to be imputed or put into your account. That's good news, isn't it? Should we just close up the word and go home now? It's a good word, isn't it? Amen. We'll keep going. Romans chapter 10, verse 4 says this. Christ, Jesus Christ is the end of the law. 
Jesus Christ is the end of the law in order to bring righteousness to everyone who believes. Awesome scripture. So Jesus Christ knew there was a law, and that's why he came. He said, listen, man can't keep these laws. I'm going to come, and I'm going to bring righteousness for them. But when I come and I, do, and I release righteousness, let me tell you something. It will be the end of the law for the believers, that is. Okay? I love this scripture in Acts chapter 13, verse 39. Through him, who's him? It's Jesus. Acts 13, 39. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Now, it's not talking about just your past sins. And it's not talking about the ones you committed on the way to church. And it's not talking about the present. It's talking about every sin, past, present, and future. Does it say every sin? It says every sin. It says, through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. It says, a righteousness you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. You could obey those commandments all you wanted to. You were breaking them in your mind, if nothing else. He said, you could not get this kind of righteousness through the law of Moses. But you can through Jesus. When there is no laws, it's a strong sermon title, but if it's true, and it is, with that declaration, it releases in our hearts a very confident expectation of good. Because I'm not worrying about my sin anymore. So I, I walk around with this confident expectation of good. Maybe that's why I'm so happy all the time, because I have this message of grace. I can walk around, and I always say good things, good things, good things. Every day, my mouth is filled all the time with releasing good things, good things, all the time. We're confident because we have this assurance that we can never, ever be judged for our sins again. We have been set free, according to that scripture, from every sin, the Bible says. So over the past couple of years, the Holy Spirit has been developing in my heart a very robust affection for the book of Romans, in particular, this chapter 5 that we're talking about. The chapter that contains those very words, sin is not imputed when there is no law. It's awesome. What I want you to see today is this, that righteousness is not only the irrevocable gift of God, but righteousness is our weapon that defeats dread, it defeats discouragement, and it defeats deficiency. I had a friend that called me earlier this week, and when I answered the phone, he just said to me, he said, you know what, I just called you. I said, what's up, brother? He said, I just called you because I need some encouragement. I'm going to tell you something. David said, I encourage myself in the Lord. And how do you encourage yourself? You can't think about the problem and be encouraged. You'll be discouraged if you think about the problem, won't you? The way you get encouraged is you think about the solution. You think about your answer. You think about this message of righteousness, knowing that I can no longer, I don't have to walk in dread. I don't have to walk in discouragement. I don't have to walk in deficiency all the time. <laughs> I got to the end of praying for him and talking with him. I said, you know what, did you notice I didn't ask what your problem was? It doesn't matter. But what I want to do is I want to point you back to the one who could solve that problem. I want to point you back to Jesus. I want you to stop and think about your righteousness. I want you to stop and think about the goodness of the Lord. And I want to tell you something. When you dwell on all of his majestic ways, all of his beautiful heart, I want to tell you something. It will crush those kind of things that are trying to reign in your life. Romans 5 has convinced and established my heart in the delightful certainty of righteousness by faith alone. You see, right out of the gate in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, the Bible declares that our righteousness came by faith 
through Jesus Christ. No other substance but faith, no other person than Christ. It is faith in Jesus Christ that infuses this righteousness in our hearts. It's just faith in Jesus. It's that simple. Put your faith in Jesus, not only to come to him in terms of salvation, but you put your faith in Jesus every single day. You know, believers sometimes forget to do that. But every day as we wake up, put your faith in Jesus. I want you to know something. It will push back all that darkness. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, this is from the 1898 Young's Literal Translation Bible. And they all say it pretty much the same way, but I love how they say it in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Having been declared righteous, having been declared righteous, then by faith, we have peace toward God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love those first two words. Having been. Not in the making. Having been. Not it's going to happen one day. Having been. Not becoming. Having been. It really speaks of a finished work. Having been declared righteous through faith, we have peace toward God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Romans 5 begins with this glorious news of righteousness right out of the gate. And Romans 5 ends with the same glorious news of righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 21. Here's what 21 says. So this is the very last scripture in the book of Romans, chapter 5. So then, just as sin ruled by means of death, so also grace rules by means of righteousness, leading us to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our Christian lives begin with righteousness, and our Christian lives end with righteousness. We don't add to it, and we can't take from it. God doesn't need a helper. God's already had the helper. His name is the Holy Spirit. We can't add anything to righteousness, and there's nothing that we can extract from it other than the righteousness itself. Righteousness begins and ends with God. So the question becomes, what is this righteousness of God? <laughs> the easiest way to say it is Jesus. Jesus is the righteousness of God. Now, you won't have a hard time believing that, do you? Here's where Christians get stuck at, though. They have a hard time believing that I'm the righteousness of God, that you're the righteousness of God. But that's what the Word says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For He, that's God, hath made Him, that's Jesus, for God hath made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin, watch this now, that we might be made the righteousness of God, in him not we're becoming not we will be one day but that we might be made it talks about again a finished work now that's a place where a lot of believers get hung up to think really i'm the righteousness of god you are always if you've asked jesus to come in your heart you put your faith in jesus you are always the righteousness of god here's a stunning thought for you we are no less righteous than jesus that's a hard one to accept you are no less righteous than Jesus. And let's just flip the coin. He's no more righteous than you. You are just as righteous as Jesus is. That's really, really good news because the Father's the one who's got his eye on you. And when he looks at you, you know what he sees? He sees his son. He sees his son, Jesus Christ. And here's how it happens. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. It says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What happened at the moment of your salvation is you literally died inside of Christ, raised to new life in Christ, and you're hidden with Christ now so that when God sees you, he has to see Christ. 
I'm in the Word. It says Colossians 3, 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus righteous? Is Jesus righteous? Absolutely. He is righteous. We don't have any problem with that. So 1 John 4, 17 says it this way. As he is, so are you. As Jesus is, so are you. But I'm glad the writer did this. He added three more words. He said, in this world. You see, so many people think that they got to wait till they get to heaven. Then they're going to be more like him. No, no, you're exactly like him right now. You get the glorified body. Yes, when you get to heaven and the glorified mind, I get it. But he's talking about your spirit man here. And he says, as he is, as Jesus is in heaven, he's full of righteousness. He's full of glory. He's full of truth. He's full of grace. He's full of love. He said, as he is, so are you. And I love it. He says, in this world. In Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21, we find these words. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Let me stop here for a second. It says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Another way to say it is simply like this. Without any help of the law. (laughs) Without any help from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. To which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, if there was anything else that we needed to make us righteous, I think they would have put it in the Word, don't you? I think they would have put it in there. He said it's faith in Jesus, and it's given to anybody who puts their faith in Jesus, they become the righteousness of God. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. I love verse 24, though. It says, And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. All are justified freely. That means the day 20 years ago when I got saved, when I was asking Jesus to come into my heart, Jesus could look down the timeline. He could look down the 20 20 years, 30, 40 years, whatever it may be, and he could look down that timeline, and he didn't say, I'm going to save you based on the fact that you're going to have more good days than you're going to have bad days. I'm going to save you because I just like certain things. No, he saved me freely by his grace. So looking down that timeline, he could see every single time that I would fail in thought, word, or deed. And he said, I'm going to still save him. He could look down that timeline. He could say, I can see every compromise Mark's going to make. Even when the Holy Spirit is saying, don't do that, I can see them all, but I'm still going to save him freely by my grace. It was nothing that I was doing over those, those 20 years or whatever it may be that God said, that, I'm so impressed with that, I'm going to save you. He saved me in spite of everything he could see, in spite of every poor choice I would make. I don't make many, trust me, I really don't. I love the Lord. And, and the Holy Spirit is in my heart, working in my heart in, in the area of grace and, and God's love. But what I'm saying is, is nobody goes 20 years without having a bad thought, a bad word, or a bad deed. Am I right? Are you with me on this? And he can see all that, and he says, in spite of all of that, I'm going to save you freely by my grace, justified freely by his grace. Continuing in verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now listen to me very carefully. The Bible says that He shed his blood. You don't have to shed your blood. His blood has already been shed on the cross. Is that right? His blood has been shed. And he said, that's what justified me freely by his blood being shed. Several years ago, I was in a convenience store early one morning. 
and the cashier came out from behind the counter, and she was mad at her son. He was uh, a teenager. She was all mad because he went and got a bunch of tattoos, you know, and he was underage, and, and they should have known better, but now her son's got these permanent tattoos. Now she's all ticked off about it. In fact, she went on, she said, well, I suppose, you know, he's got his examples from his mom, and uh, he's a cutter like me. And I said, whoa, wait, 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 what'd you say? I know he ain't working at no meat market. He's a cutter like me. And I said, what do you mean a cutter like you? And she pulled up her sleeve. She had so many scars on her arm, it looked like a Mississippi road map. And then she pulled up the left sleeve. She was almost proud of all the places she had taken a razor blade or a knife and cut her arm all up and stuff like that. And she said, there's my most recent ones. They, were still, they still had scabs on them and looking infected. And I looked at her and I said, can I ask you a question? She said, yes. I said, why do you do that? She said, you know what, here's the deal. She said, I'm in such emotional pain. I'm in such emotional pain. She said, the only way I can temporarily get out of that emotional pain for a few days, if it will be, or a week or so, she said, I've got to grab a knife and cut myself because it hurts so bad and it distracts me so much, it takes me out of this emotional pain. And I said, young lady, surely he hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God. But he was wounded for your transgressions. He was cut for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his cut, with his stripes you have been healed if she could have stared a hole through me she'd have done it I don't know what happened to that lady maybe now she's serving Jesus Jesus has already circumcised her heart and, and she's a new person I don't know this is the way the Holy Spirit moved but what I've come by today to tell you you don't have to shed your blood he's already shed his you don't have to act like a crazy man doing this and that to get out of emotional pain. Just run to Jesus. Just start looking at all of his glory, looking at all of his righteousness, all of his beauty, all of his love. And I'm going to tell you something that will overwhelm that emotional pain. The Bible says he did this to demonstrate his righteousness, not ours. Because in his forbearance, now here's where it ties back into that scripture I gave you in the beginning. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So he's talking about all those sins that were going on in Genesis back there before the law. And he said he had left them unpunished. So now came a time to bring justice. Now came time, listen, God doesn't overlook sin. He's got to deal with it on some level or not, right? He's going to have to deal with it with you or he's going to have to deal with it with his son, one of the two, but he's got to deal with it. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Oh, man. Let me give you a scripture that's dear to my heart, and you'll see why as I read it. It's Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 4. And it says, I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. Do you see why that's dear to my heart? First of all, God says, I'm going to set them up. Listen, we didn't birth Triumph and Grace Ministries because we had a passion to come over here and, and preach. God set us up. And he said, I'm going to set up shepherds. He said, the reason I'm going to put shepherds in there is so that they can feed them. What he says here in the Word. Now watch what it says right after that. It says, and I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Okay, the first thing he says, they're not going to fear. That's dread. The second thing he says, they're not going to be dismayed. That's discouraged. And the third thing he says, they're not going to be lacking. That, my friends, is deficiency. I don't know about you, but the substance of, 
or the even the absence, should I say, of dread and discouragement and deficiency, it sounds kind of like the God kind of life to me. It's kind of the God kind of life that Jesus talked about in John 10.10 when he says, I've come that you might have life and that you might have life more abundantly. You, you can't act right when, you, when you're worried about things, when you're fearful about things, when you're discouraged and all beat up like my friend that called me, when you're deficient and you're lacking in some area of life. I am walking in this revelation of his righteousness. And that's why even when things that I would normally have been afraid of in the past, I'm not fearful of now. Because I don't give him much thought. Okay, it's an issue. Okay, let's deal with it. Or it's an issue. God will deal with it. I'm not going to stay in that discouraged level and, and, and let it beat me up. And I always feel like, listen, I always sense that God is going to take care of me. I don't care how thick and thin things get, how tough things get. God is going to take care of me. I am never going to lack. Did you notice, first of all, I want to say this, that when the shepherd feeds the, the sheep the right kind of food, dread, discouragement, and deficiency left. So my question became, what, what in the world? What in the world are these sheep drinking? What are these sheep eating? What are they taking in that could cause dread and discouragement and deficiency to leave? Let me deal with fear, first of all. First of all, I hope there's not many people in this room that can identify with what it's like to grow up in a family with an alcoholic. I can. I knew nothing but that in my childhood. You know what you do with, uh, when you're around people like that? You walk around on pins and needles always dreading that you're going to say something or you're going to do something that's going to make them lose their cool. So growing up in my family, we experienced dread all the time. We experienced discouragement all the time. And we experienced deficiency all the time. Drama was common throughout my childhood. My stepfather and my actual biological father were both alcoholics. And I want you to know something. It disrobed our families of a confident expectation of good. It just literally disrobed us. And you know what I, I thought about? There doesn't even have to be an alcoholic in the family. Just be born into a family that has emotional woundedness going on. You'll find the same results. You're always walking around for fear that you're going to set somebody off. Be born into a family that has someone in there that's controlling and manipulating. You'll feel the exact same way. My mother divorced my stepfather in 1985 because he was an alcoholic. His new wife said... It's me or the bottle. And he chose her. My mother couldn't get him to do that. He lived another 25 years, and the guy was an awesome man. He was an awesome man when he wasn't drinking. When he was drinking, you didn't want to be around him. And when my uncle and I went to his funeral in 2010, I watched his family, his new family, for the last 25 years pass by his casket. And I watched them weep, and I, I listened to some of the things they were saying. And I looked at my uncle, and I said, Uncle Ed, I said, my family paid an amazing price so that this family could love this man the way they love him. My family came first. My family paid an awesome price. It was a price of dread and discouragement and deficiency, lack all the time while my mom was married to him. And then as I was driving home that day, I heard the Lord say to me, Son, my family paid an awesome price too. My family paid an awesome price so that you wouldn't have to be in dread and discouragement and deficiency. So, 
What is my point? Many Christians are kind of stuck in this oscillation mode. You guys know what an oscillating fan is? It's kind of blowing over here one moment, and then it moves, and it's blowing over here. One moment they have a really confident expectation of good from the Father. And then the very next moment the fan swings the other way, and they've got this fearful expectation of our Father. It shouldn't be that way. He is always, always good and gracious and loving. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, again, it says, Having been declared righteous then by faith, we are supposed to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's saying you're supposed to have this confident expectation of good. But so many believers are afraid that their foolish words and thoughts and actions are going to make their daddy angry at them. It couldn't be the farthest thing from the truth. God is never, ever angry at you. He poured out every ounce of anger he had on his son Jesus so that he could never, ever be angry with you. So the question again, what was the substance? I didn't answer the question. What was the substance that the shepherd was feeding these sheep that took away this dread, discouragement, and deficiency? Jeremiah 23, verse 4 again. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Verse 5. Behold, the days come saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David, or another way to say that is I will raise through David. And if you look at Matthew chapter 1, you'll see Jesus' lineage, Jesus came through David. And he starts by that verse, that fifth verse by saying, Behold the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise through David a righteous branch. So you see the type and shadow of Jesus already, don't you? I'm going to raise through David a righteous branch. We're not talking about a branch on a tree. Branches on trees are not righteous, friends. They don't have spirits. And besides that, branch is capitalized. He said, I'm going to raise through David a righteous branch and a king, and that's capitalized as well, shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Sounds like it just kind of went south there. I like the part about the righteous branch. I like the part about the, the prospering king. But now the executing judgment and justice, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Friends, let me tell you something. The word execute there in the Hebrew just means deal with. Let me reread the scripture. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David, or through David, a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall deal with judgment and justice in the earth. Jesus could not release his righteousness until he dealt with judgment first. And it wasn't his judgment, it was our judgment. All of our judgment was put on him. The moment our judgment was put on him, he died, and then he released his righteousness, righteousness by faith. The moment that Jesus died and rose again, that's when righteousness by faith, the righteousness that we have today, was birthed into the human heart. So he says, I'm going to deal with this judgment. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to give it a death blow once and for all. And I used these scriptures a while back, but I love them. It's Jesus speaking in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And then he says, and I, if I will be lifted up, he literally says, I will draw all judgment unto me. I want you to receive that this morning. That when Jesus was lifted up, and they're talking about the cross, that's him lift, being lifted up. He was lifted up on the cross. He says, when that happens, he says, I'm going to draw all 
your judgment to me. And the reason I'm doing that is so that I have a legal right to release righteousness in your heart. You see how that works? Thank God, huh? Thank Lord. Thank you, Lord. So Jesus executed judgment perfectly. In other words, he dealt with judgment perfectly on the cross. It was our judgments. Jesus dealt with our judgment once and for all. So, Jeremiah 23, verses uh, 4 and 5 again. And I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise through David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall deal with judgment and justice in the earth. Now let's get to that verse 6, because we want to see what are these sheep feeding on. What are these sheep eating that takes away this fear, this dread? What are they eating that takes away this discouragement? That's dismay. What are they eating that takes away this deficiency? That's lack. Verse 6. I think we're going to see his name get revealed. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. Now here it goes. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called. The Lord, all capitals, the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. The word Lord there is Yehovah. And the word righteousness is Sadek. So when you bring them together, he said, this is what the sheep are feeding on. They're feeding on Yehovah, Sadek, the Lord, our righteousness. Friends, I want to tell you something. It's through that revelation. It's through that meditation. This is what I was sharing with my friend the other day when he called me. He said, I need to be encouraged. I said, start meditating upon his righteousness. What else are you going to tell somebody like that? Here's a 10-step program to get out of this situation. I don't care what the situation is. Start meditating upon his righteousness. Start meditating upon the Lord, our righteousness, Jehovah Sadek. And when we meditate upon his righteousness, we are set free from every sin, every dread, every discouragement, and every deficiency. When we realize that we are forever righteous through the covenant of grace, everything changes. I'm telling you, everything changes. Everything changes when you're aware there is no law that's governed you except righteousness and love. And those are free gifts from God himself. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 14, we find these words. In righteousness, you see, do you see the theme here this morning? Do you see it's about righteousness? It's about Jesus' righteousness? He says, in righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression. That's tyranny. For thou shalt not fear. That's dread. And from terror, that's intense dread. For it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. God is not the author of that kind of stuff. He said, they're going to come against you, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. That's verse 15. Now let's skip over verse 16 and hit verse 17, the very last scripture of Isaiah chapter 54. Many of you could probably quote it by heart. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to condemn it. He said, you're going to condemn it. 
when you understand this righteousness as a weapon, he said, this is how powerful it is. You're going to condemn it. He said, every, every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment, thou shalt condemn. He said, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. In other words, he's saying their inheritance, their power, their glory is of me, saith the Lord. It does not say that there will not be weapons that are forged or formed against us. Because in the verse I didn't read, the Bible says that God says, I created the blacksmith. Did God create the blacksmith? He sure did. He said it in the Word. And he said, I've also created the destroyer. What the destroyer does, he takes what the blacksmith makes, <laughs> and he destroys people with it. Weapons. But he said, I created them. But when they come against you, I didn't do it. But I'm going to tell you something. I put something inside of you, a righteousness inside of you. When you understand your righteousness, I want you to know something. It's a greater weapon. It's a more awesome weapon. The Bible says greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Oh, my goodness. So it doesn't say that weapons won't be forged against us. It says they won't prosper in this word here. The enemy tries to bring dread and discouragement and deficiency against you. But we disarm him with a greater weapon. It's the weapon of righteousness. It's the weapon of the Lord, our righteousness. It's the weapon of Jehovah Sadek. John Hagee told the story. Everybody's probably seen John Hagee on television. He's from Cornerstone Church in uh, San Antonio, Texas. And I was watching him a few years ago, and I, he sucked me in with a story. He was telling me, I thought, man, th is this really, this really happened? It did. Early in his ministry... He was preaching in a service. And there was a woman that had been coming to his church who, whatever he was, he was sharing in it, from the pulpit, it was changing that woman's life. So much that her husband didn't like it. And he saw the change in his wife, and he didn't like it because someone had stolen the heart of my wife. And I don't like it. I don't care if it's Jesus or not. I had a friend one time that would walk around her house and just go, just kind of like I do all the time. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. She would th say things like that. And her husband would always go, why do you always got to keep saying that? Jealous. So whatever John Hagee was putting into this woman's heart, it changed her life. And her husband saw it and he didn't like it. So he purposed one Sunday morning to get up, dress for church, and he was going to go to Pastor John Hagee's church and kill it. And in the middle of his message, that man got up and walked the aisle. And when he got down right in front of John Hagee, behind the pulpit, he pulled out his pistol, and he put it right in his face. And he said to him, get on your knees and beg your God to save your life. John Hagee picked up his Bible, and he said, sir, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. That's all he said. Bang, 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 all six shots. And at the end of all six shots, John Hagee was still standing. The ushers tackled the man, called the police, and they came and hauled him away. When they came and they, they did this investigation here, they, they put an X on the floor where the man was standing. They said, you, he was standing right there. Yes, you were standing right there. Yes, I was. And they took string from that spot to every one of those bullet holes on the wall. Three went to the left, three went to the right. How in the world do you explain something like that? Isaiah chapter 54, verses 14 through 17. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. And every tongue, every gun, every knife, everything that rises up against me in judgment, thou shalt condemn. I can condemn because I am a, I'm a son of God, not even a servant anymore. If this was true as a servant, how much more true is it as a son, right? 
No weapon formed against you shall prosper. I want you to start saying that every single day. No weapon. I am the righteousness of God in Christ, and no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Amen? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4 says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Friends, if it's not dealt with, dread, discouragement, and, def and deficiency will become strongholds. They kill, steal, and destroy people. I know of one way to demolish these strongholds, and that is the weapon that we fight with is understanding our righteousness in God because it gives you a confident expectation of good things. It gives you a confident expectation of a good outcome. Amen? So back to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, where this scripture came out of. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, who's that one man? It's Adam, isn't it? Sin entered the world through the one man, and death through sin, and this way death came to all people because all sin. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not imputed, sin is not deposited into your account when there is no law. Now watch how Romans chapter 4 corroborates what I just said. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, Faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. So if you think you're going to contribute to your righteousness, he just says right there, the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath. And now watch what he says. And where there is no law, there are no transgressions. I love that. Quit being sin conscious. I'm not saying you are, but don't be sin conscious. He says where there is no law, there are no transgressions. Are you under the law, sister? Then there's no transgressions. There's nothing that can ever be put in your account. You're like that baby oil with the mandate. Doesn't stick, doesn't stick, doesn't stick. When sin comes, yeah, you, will you sin? You might, yeah, you might. But it doesn't stick because it cannot be put in your account when you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous shall live by faith. Awesome scripture. Sin entered the world because Adam opened the door for sin. We see that in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 and 13. But Jesus came and became our righteousness, and we actually call him in, I think it's John chapter 10, we actually, he's actually called the door. Jesus did not come to shut a bunch of doors. You see, here's the deal. If I put a poor man outside of a bank vault and shut it and lock it, he can still lust for what's behind the door. If I take a hungry man and put him outside the kitchen and lock it, he can still hunger, he can actually covet what's going on in the kitchen. So Jesus didn't come and say, you know, I just came, I'm just going to shut a bunch of doors for you. No, he said, here's why I've come. I've come to open a new door for you. I've come to open the door. In fact, I am the door. And he that walks into me, who comes in this door? Oh, we'll find in just a second what happens. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. 
Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the door, but climbs up some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. And then he says, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. One thing I'm very thankful for even a church this size is I know all your names. When I go to praying in the morning, I can call you by name. And I did this morning as I was speaking blessings over your life. I was saying, Father, I want to thank you for David and Marty and Jean. They all three just go together. I want to thank you for them right now. I speak blessings over their life. I want to thank you for Michelle. I want to thank you for Lola. I even thanked them for Dory this morning. And, and I, I said, Lord, bring Dory. I want to thank you for Dory this morning. And I speak blessings. And I over PJ and Patty, every single one of you that are here today. The Bible says, He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. What does he lead them out of? He leads them out of dread. He leads them out of discouragement. He leads them out of deficiency through gentle and powerful persuasions of the gospel of grace. He leads them out of themselves. That's something we need to be delivered from is just from ourselves, our own self-right. He leads us out of self-righteousness and into the love and grace of Jesus. And then the Bible says when he has brought out all his own he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice but they will not follow a stranger and this morning when i read that this morning it will not follow a stranger you know we need to get used to the fact that dread is a stranger quit following dread and if dread is following you chase it away we need to quit letting discouragement follow us and any kind of lack deficiency follow us the bible says they will never follow a stranger in fact they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice jesus used this figure of speech but the pharisees did not understand what he was telling them therefore jesus said again very truly i tell you let's make it plain i am the door for the sheep all who have come before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep have not listened to them Would you agree that dread is a robber? Would you agree that discouragement is a robber? How about deficiency? Rob, steal, right? Amen. He says, I am the door in verse 9 again. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and find pasture. I love that. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus wrapped it up in verse 10 by saying, but I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. In closing, let me say this. I read a story recently of a man by the name of Ernest Shackleton. They called him Sir Ernest Shackleton. And in 1908 and 1909, Shackleton and three companions set off on an expedition to reach the South Pole. The South Pole is a very, very cold place. In fact, it's colder than the North Pole. But they set off to explore the South Pole. They left home that day with a confident expectation of good. But here's the problem. Their confident expectation of good was in themselves and not in God. A big difference. Put your confident expectation in God. When they left, they had four ponies to help carry the load. But along the journey, they met with dread. They met with discouragement. They met with deficiency. Weeks later, all four ponies were dead. Their food rations all but exhausted. And then they had to make a decision Do we keep going to the South Pole? 
it's closer than going back home. But what about when we get there? We have no food. The journey will be longer going back. They said, that doesn't make sense. If I continue to go to the South Pole, that would just be what we call an empty victory. You won, but you lost at the same time. So they turned around and they began to march home. All in all, they had traveled 127 days. Now let me do some math here for you. If an average man can walk 20 miles a day, let's just cut it in half and say they travel 10 miles a day. That's 1,270 miles. Friends, that's a long way in a car. (laughs) That's a really long way on foot. That's like driving to Georgia and back. It's a long way. They made a decision to come home. On their journey, Shackleton records in his book called The Heart of the Antarctic, their time was spent talking about one thing. One God, one Jesus, one the South Pole, wasn't even their family. It was food. That's all they could talk about all the way home. Elaborate feasts, gourmet delights, sumptuous menus as they staggered along suffering from dysentery, the nasty disease, not knowing whether or not they would survive Every waking hour was occupied with thoughts of eating. Here's what I felt the Lord say to me. A long life's journey that we're on right now, we're going to encounter dread. We're going to bump into discouragement. We're going to occasionally step into some deficiency. But Jesus said this in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you so that in me, not in you, In me, in my righteousness, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 when he said these words. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Friends, righteousness is his name. Remember the Lord our righteousness. Righteousness is his name. Blessed are those, another way to say it is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Jesus. You got an issue of life? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Jesus. Blessed are those, for they shall be filled. The righteousness is none other than Christ, but we only hunger and thirst for righteousness until we come to Christ. Then another scripture takes root, and that is the scripture, John 6, 35, in closing. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, we don't have to keep thirsting for right. We already have righteousness. Righteousness does not come and go like an oscillating fan. It is always constant. But understanding your righteousness, now that's another story. The only way you and I can journey through this life with a confident expectation of good is when there is no law but righteousness. When there is no law but Jesus. Father, I want to thank you in Jesus' name. Your word makes it so plain. All the scriptures are interconnected. Father, that 
when righteousness takes root in our heart. What a gift we have. And that's why the, the book of Romans chapter 5 calls it the gift of righteousness. It calls it the gift of righteousness. Literally it says the gift of Jesus. I want to thank you, Father, that as we meditate on the gift of righteousness that dwells on the inside of us, inside of our spirit, it pushes back dread. It pushes back discouragement. It pushes back efficiency in Jesus' name. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. Only by grace is this quickened in our hearts. Only by grace is this brought to life in our hearts. And Father, I speak grace over the people of God in this room in Jesus' name. Yehovah, Sadat, the Lord, our righteousness in Jesus' name. Amen.